Well, everybody knows Tim Tebow's favorite Bible verse, right? Uh, back in 2009, Tebow quarterbacked the Florida Gators to a college football championship, and in the game, on his eye black, which is that smudge, sometimes it's a sticker, sometimes it's grease, uh, he had printed John 3.16. John, and they won the game, and within days of the game, over 90 million people had Googled John 3.16. They wanted to know, what is this verse that Tebow was wearing on his eye black? And so the NCAA, they were annoyed. They passed a rule. Uh, no more advertising, that's what they called it, no more advertising on iBlack. It became known as the Tebow rule. Fast forward to 2012. Okay, Tebow was now quarterbacking the Denver Broncos, and they're in a playoff game. Uh, postseason, it's a, it's a January game. They are the decided underdogs, but they keep neck and neck with their opponents up until overtime. And in overtime, Tebow throws an 80-yard touchdown pass. Broncos win. People go crazy. The sportscasters on TV are telling us about the statistics of the game, and they stop. They're amazed. You know how many yards he's passed for? 316. Whoa, whoa. And he passed... Com completed exactly 10 passes, which means every pass was 31.6 yards. We're talking 316. And once again, Google lights up. Everybody wants to know what's John 3.16. Tim Tebow's favorite verse. If you go to Wikipedia, you'll find that John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have preached at Christ Community Church for 32 years. Uh, in fact, this weekend is the 32nd anniversary of Christ Community Church. How about that, huh? Yeah. So 32 years ago, had no idea who was going to show up a week and a half before Christmas, 1984, at uh, the little movie theater in St. Charles that we had rented. And a bunch of people showed up, and the rest, as they, they say, is history. But in 32 years, I have never preached a sermon on John 3.16. Now, I've preached through the passage that it can be found in, but I've never dedicated a sermon solely to John 3.16 until today. So today, our text is John 3.16. And you don't have to turn there because you're going to memorize it if you don't know it by memory already. We're going to memorize John 3.16 together line by line. Now, before we get started, let me give you a little bit of historical background. Historical background, when you're looking at a Bible passage, is called... Good, that was okay, but you're cold. All right? It's called... Context. That's the C in coma, the four-step Bible study method. Context. So here's the context of John 3.16. There's a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. I love that name. Nicodemus. Us. Okay, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus one evening in the dark, and the reason he comes to Jesus in the dark, Jesus is camping out with his buds, with his 12 disciples. He comes at night because he's a bit embarrassed. He's a religious leader, okay, and he's going to ask some God questions of this upstart rabbi. He doesn't want this ruining his reputation. He's supposed to be the guy with the answers, not the guy with questions. And yet Nicodemus, like many of the people who arrive at Christ Community Church for the first time, was an explorer. He wanted to know how to begin a relationship with God. So he and Jesus talk, and they talk, and they, and they talk. And John 3.16 is the culmination of that conversation. 
Now, Bible scholars are not sure uh, whether John 3.16 is Jesus' final word in the conversation or if Jesus' final word was in John 3.15, the previous verse. And so verse 16 and following are commentary. So the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, and so maybe he's summing up the conversation. We're, we're not sure. Did Jesus say it, or is this John's summary? In fact, if you've got a Bible that's got red letters in the Gospels, any of you got one of those kind of Bibles? The red letters tell you this is what Jesus said. What's interesting is some red letter editions have John 3.16 in red, meaning Jesus said this, and others have it in black, meaning, no, this wasn't Jesus, this was John's summary of what Jesus said. But it doesn't really matter. This verse encapsulates their entire conversation. Okay, this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. This is how a person gets saved, how you experience a relationship with God. One Bible scholar calls John 3.16 the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell in a nutshell. So if you're exploring the faith here today or watching online one of our other campuses, if you're exploring the Christian faith, a relationship with Jesus, this verse is for you. And, and let me say, if you're already a committed Christ follower, this verse is for you, but it's meant for you to pass on to somebody else. In fact, let me just challenge you at the beginning of this sermon to consider, as we learn this verse together, to consider the possibility of sharing John 3.16 with somebody else this coming week. Okay, this week that leads up to Christmas. Now, how do you get into a conversation? Uh, I'll give you a couple of hooks here, okay? Here's some icebreaker questions. How about this one? Do you know the only Bible verse that's been banned by the NCAA? See? And people will say, well, no. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, John 3.16. And you tell them the Tebow story, and boom, you're off and running. Or, or how about this? Do, do you know the most famous verse in the entire Bible according to Wikipedia? Or, or, you know, my preferred start would be this. Have I ever told you about a Bible verse that, like, it j just completely changed my life? And boom, you could share the insights we're about to learn from John 3.16. So consider, consider learning this verse today, not just for yourself, but be saying to yourself as you're learning this, I'm going to use this with somebody. So John 3.16, four phrases. First phrase is this, for God so loved the world. I'll say it again, but you're going to learn it, right? For God so loved the world. Say it with me. For God so loved the world. Let's do it again. For God so loved the world. Okay, point number one, if you're, you're taking notes in your outline, it will help you remember the verse, okay? So the first point is this, God's global love. God's global love, for God so loved the world. Now, the Apostle John really likes the word world. If you read through his biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John, or one of his three New Testament epistles, letters, he uses the word world a lot, and he uses it in two different ways. He uses the word world to communicate both bigness and badness. Okay, so we're going to start with big. For God so loved the world means that God loves everybody, everywhere, no exceptions. God loves the, the really, really big world. Now, this would have been news to Nicodemus. Okay, like any good Jew in his day, Nicodemus believed that God loved exclusively the Jews. Now, he had read his Bible, our Old Testament, that says that, that the Jews are God's chosen 
people. So he probably brought that up in conversation with Jesus, and Jesus probably responded by saying, I agree with you. We are. We're God's chosen people. But Nick, do you know why God chose us? Okay, why did God choose the Jews? And Nicodemus kind of shrugs his shoulders, and Jesus says, it's because God had a mission for us. God had a purpose. God's purpose is that we'd be a signpost. We'd be a great big billboard pointing the way to the one true living God who loves what? The world. Who loves everybody. For God so loved the world. world communicates bigness. God loves everybody. And, and God can pull this off, friends, because he's infinite. Now think about this for a moment. God is infinite. There are no limitations to his attributes. There are no limitations to his abilities. That's why God can love everybody. You and I, we are finite. We, we have limitations. We, we couldn't love everybody even if we wanted to, and the truth is we don't want to. <laughs> but even if we wanted to, we could love, you know, we could love, well, maybe 10 people. You know, may, maybe some of you have a bigger capacity. You could love 20 people. Maybe, maybe you could love 100 people. But there's only one person in the universe who could love everybody, and that's God, his global love. He loves the world. Sometimes when we're singing worship songs at the beginning of our services at uh, Christ Community Church, and I like to sing with my hands in the air and my voice lifted up and just at the top of my lungs, and as I'm singing, I'll often close my eyes and think about the fact that I visit a lot of different people all around the world on missions trips, our go team adventures, and they come to mind. I'm thinking right now around the world, there are people gathered just like we're gathering at Christ Community Church, people I've met in Haiti and Brazil and Bangladesh and Nicaragua, and they're doing the very same thing. We are lifting our praise to King Jesus, and then it crosses my mind that God loves every one of them. In fact, he loves them as intimately and as passionately as he loves me. God loves the world. So the apostle John chose the word world because it communicates bigness. God's love extends to everybody. But John also chose the word world because it communicates badness. The world's bad. In, in the opening chapter of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 10, he describes how the world rejected Jesus when Jesus came to the world. Jesus was in the world, John writes, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Later on in John, John 7, verse 7, Jesus says to his followers, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. John 16, verse 8, Jesus says that the Holy, Holy Spirit's job is to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. You go to his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes that the world is characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when John writes three, in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he's not just talking about the bigness of the world. He's talking about the badness of the world. The world can be a pretty wicked place. Uh, Sue and I, uh, in our home, if you come to visit, you'll see in the entranceway hallway, uh, we've got a wall that's got this huge world map there. And it has become kind of a conversation piece over the years. In fact, it's, you know, usually when people are putting on their coats and we're trying to get them out the door so we could 
put on our pajamas and go to bed. They're still standing in front of the world map, picking out places that they've been, and oh, we've been here and we've been there. And what I found interesting is this. If, if my friends who are over, if they're not Christ followers, they've never been on a missions trip, they've never gone on a go team adventure like we sponsor here at Christ Community Church, they'll usually point to places where they've been that are just wonderful, beautiful. They'll say, oh, remember when we went to Italy and we did that, you know, that vineyard tour? And, or they'll point to Mexico. Remember the two-week all-inclusive resort that we just laid on the beach and sipped pina coladas? And what, or, or they'll point to you know, Hong Kong. Remember a year ago, I, I, I did a business trip in Hong Kong. It's just a hustling, bustling city. Isn't the world an incredible place? What a beautiful place. And then they'll turn and they'll ask me, where have you been? Now, I'll point to the places I've been that have been decimated by natural disasters and civil wars and communist oppression and abject poverty. You know, the world's not a beautiful place. The world can be a very wicked place. And the Bible teaches, and this is a a humbling truth, friends, that every one of us makes our own contribution to the world's badness. You know, we, we pollute the world. We pollute the world every day with our selfishness, our, our dishonesty, our anger, our immorality, our pride, our, our you name it. I mean, the, the reason the world is bad is because we've made it that way. But God so loved the world. Not, not just the big world, the bad world. You know what that tells us about God's love? It tells us that God loves us. Now listen, God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. In other words, God doesn't love us because we're, we're, we're lovable. In fact, we're not. God loves us because his very nature is love. John tells us that in his first epistle. In one chapter, 1 John 4, he says it twice, very succinctly. He just says in verse 8, again in verse 16, God is love. God is love. Friends, that ought to give us a great sense of warmth and security in our relationship with God because God's love for us doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't increase when we're good and decrease when we're bad. It's constant because it doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon him. You get it? Good. He loves us. God is love. I, I was at a doctor's appointment this past week, and this particular doctor goes to Christ Community Church. And so every year when we do a This is Christmas outreach, he offers tickets to anybody on his staff or any of their family members who want to go. So this year he sprang for uh, 60 tickets to the This is Christmas event at the St. Charles campus. 60 people uh, from his workplace. So uh, one of those people was leading me to an examination room, and I passed another medical staff on the way, and she just slipped a piece of paper in my hand. So I took it to the examination room, and I, I read it, and she had written on it, obviously having been here at This is Christmas, she had written on it, thanks for reminding us that Jesus loves us. I can finally believe it. Thank you. I can finally believe it. We, we can believe it. We can believe that God loves us, and it's, 
It's not, listen, it's not because we finally made the grade. It's not because we've managed to finally convince ourselves, I am lovable, I am lovable. No, it's because we've been assured that God is love. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Say that with me. For God so loved the world. He loved the big world, meaning everybody. He, He loved the bad world, which means sinful, rebellious, unlovable people like you and me. God's global love. Number two, God's global gift. Now here's the second phrase of John 3.16. That he gave his one and only son. I'll say it again. That he gave his one and only son. Now you got to say it with me. Here we go. That he gave his one and only son. Let's do it again, even louder, across all four campuses. Here we go. That he gave his one and only son. Now put the whole thing together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, love is a feeling that comes and goes. At least that's how our popular love songs have been, you know, depicting love for ages, Right? I think of uh, an old classic love song. It's been done in retro fashion a number of times since it first came out. I think early 70s, uh, a duo called the Righteous Brothers. Believe it or not, there was a group like that. And, and the, the words of the song go like this. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, whoa that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. And it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They, they, they don't write songs like that anymore, okay? <laughs> Thank goodness, all right? The, the Bible has a dramatically different take on love. It's not just a feeling. It's not a love and feeling. It's an action as demonstrated by God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he what? Say the word. Gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, there are two senses in which God gave the world Jesus. The first sense has to do with Christmas. You know, God gave us Jesus by sending him into the world as a baby on that first Christmas day. Theologians call this the incarnation. God became flesh, a a little child that's fully God, fully human, amazing. 700 years before Jesus arrived on the planet in Bethlehem, Isaiah prophesied his coming with words that have become famous because Mr. Handel picked them up and used them as lyrics to one of the songs in in, in his famous Messiah. Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I can hardly quote that without hearing the music of the Messiah in the background. Unto us a son is given. God gave us Jesus that first Christmas. Now, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for God. Uh, I'm a dad, and I have two daughters that I have given away in marriage to a couple of lugheads. Really wonderful guys. But, you know, it happened right here in the St. Charles campus. I came down this aisle, and I fought back tears the entire way as my daughters grasped my arm. And dads of young young girls, your day's coming, okay? And I, oh, it's so hard to give them away. And and I'm giving them to really good guys who I know are going to care for them deeply, and I know it's not going to change my relationship with them. 
And, and just recently, I had to give daughter Rachel away a second time because uh, her husband Jameson took Rachel and my two grandkids, ages three and one, to England for three years to work on a PhD. And, and again, I have to remind myself, this is, this is a good thing. They're going to be well cared for. I mean, there's, there are a few Brits out there who are still, you know, fussed up over the Revolutionary War, I suppose. But, you know, they're, they're going to do okay. I'm going to FaceTime them every week. They're coming home this next week for Christmas. And I compare that with what God experienced. He didn't send a son, friends, from the USA to England. He sent a son from the glories of heaven, the glories of heaven to planet Earth. He, he placed his son as a little embryo in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born into a peasant family in poverty. He grew up doing rigorous manual labor. He grew up under Roman oppression and tyranny. You know, God gave us Jesus that first Christmas, and that's one of the things we, uh, we celebrate when we read John 3:16, "For God so loved the world." We celebrate His coming at Christmas. He gave us His one and only Son. Now, the second sense in which God gave us Jesus has to do not with Christmas, but with Good Friday. Romans 8, verse 32 says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, gave him up in Romans 8, 32 is talking about the cross. God gave us Jesus to pay for our sins. The, the penalty for sin, according to the Bible, is death. You know, when, when, we, when we choose to willfully disobey God, which is something we do every day of our lives, we, we disconnect from the giver of life, and the consequence, the Bible says, is death. So God gave us Jesus to pay our sins penalty, to die in our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That's what it means. He gave him to death. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it this way. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love demonstrated in Christ's death. Dr. David Jeremiah has come out, I think, the last year or two with a really delightful book on God's love called God Loves You. And in the book, he tells the story of a fellow named William Dixon. Uh, Dixon, true story, Dixon lived in the early 1800s in a small English village called Brackenthwaite. Uh, he lost his wife, he lost a, a son to disease. And uh, one day, the grieving Dixon was looking out the window of his home and he saw that the house next door was on fire a house where an elderly lady lived with her grandson. And so he raced out the door. He found that the local people had already managed to get inside and pull the old woman out of the house. But the boy was still stuck. He was stuck in a second-floor bedroom, and the, the fire had already caused the stairway to collapse. There was no way to reach him. So Dixon ran around the side of the house, and he saw an iron uh, drain pipe, and he began to crawl up this red-hot drain pipe scalding his hands. The flesh was melting on his hands. And he reached the boy's room and he bundled him into his arms and he carried him to safety. Now, now the grandma didn't live. She never recovered. And so the, the village elders, the leaders of the town, they got together to decide what to do with this young boy. He needed a home. He needed some parents, adoptive parents. And there were, there were two candidates. There was a, there was a young couple 
who had al always wanted a boy, and they could provide well for him, and so they volunteered, and the other volunteer was William Dixon. And the village elders took one look at his hands, and they decided in his favor, anybody with hands like that must really love that little boy. Friends, the Bible teaches that in heaven, in his glorified state, Jesus still bears the scars in his hands of the nails that held him to the cross where he paid the penalty for our sin. You know, the lyrics to one of my favorite worship songs at Christ Community, we often sing this during communion. They go like this. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Okay, my name is graven on his hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Gave him at Christmas. Gave him in another sense on Good Friday. God's love is a giving love. You know, once we genuinely experience that love for ourselves, once we genuinely experience that love for ourselves, it makes us givers. In fact, this is a bit of a litmus test in John's mind. Later on in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, he writes, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? See, John says when we see people in need, whether it's physical needs or we see people in spiritual need, they, they need Jesus. If we've experienced the love of God ourselves, John says, well, we've got to give. In fact, he says a lack of generosity would be evidence that we know nothing of God's love because God's love is a giving love. God's love is a giving love. You know, we got a week and a half left in 2016 to give generously to meet the needs, physical needs, spiritual needs of people. You know, I, I hope you'll demonstrate that you have been gripped by the love of God who loves you so much that he gave his son and that will be reflected in your giving. You know, you've seen all the, the partners around the world that we support today in, in, in video. That's part of our next campaign you know, part of the blessing is being able to support what God's doing around the world. And then through our church, reaching the four communities of our four campuses, give generously. Demonstrate that you, you have been gripped by the love of God in your life. Number three, God's global invitation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Here's the next phrase, John 3, 16 that whoever believes in him, say that with me, that whoever believes in him, one more time, that whoever believes in him, let's put the whole enchilada together so far, okay, here we go, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, some of you want to complete it, but don't go there yet, Okay. If we want to experience the benefits of God's love, John 3.16 says we've got to respond to God's invitation. We've got to believe in Jesus. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have a mistaken notion about uh, what it means to believe. And, you know, this is not a, a new problem. This has been around for, for forever. 
I just finished a uh, biography of one of my heroes, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards was a pastor back in the 1700s, early 1700s, uh, in the American colonies. In fact, he pastored probably one of the, the most prestigious churches or, or well-known churches of his day. And he also led a movement that historians call the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a revival, a spiritual revival that swept across the colonies. Many historians say that without the Great Awakening, there would never have been an American Revolution because it did something spiritually in people that, that made them ready to take on the American Revolution. So the Great Awakening, how did it begin? Well, well it began by Edwards looking at his church one day, and he wasn't happy with what he saw. Okay, back in his day, the way, way you joined a church, the way you became a member, is you, you signed a piece of paper that said you believed in some basic Bible doctrines. So, so you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came to earth, he uh, died on the cross, he rose from the dead. If you believe that stuff in your head, you sign the paper you're in. But Edwards looked uh, across his congregation and he realized that the, the right belief wasn't making any, di making any difference in people's lives. They, they weren't living transformed lives. And it dawned on him that maybe we don't have the right definition for believe. So he began to preach a more robust belief saying, you know, believing means surrendering your whole self to Christ. Now, because of this, there were, began to be a change in the people of his congregation, which sparked the Great Awakening. And let me tell you, Edwards was right on the money with respect to what it means to believe because the Bible's word for believe is a, a much fuller word than what we've sometimes concluded. It, it means far more than just agreeing in your mind with certain Bible truths. It means your whole person entrusted to Christ. Not just your mind, but your heart, your will. Around Christ Community Church, we call it surrender. You not only believe certain things, but in your heart you say, and I want Jesus. I want him. I want him more than I want my sinful choices. I love him because of what he did for me on the cross. It's a heart surrender. And it's a will surrender. You've heard me say before, it's getting up from the throne of your life and saying, okay, I've been king, I've been queen, but now I want Jesus on the throne. I want Jesus calling the shots. This is what it means biblically to believe. It means your whole self surrendered to Christ, your mind, your heart, your will. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? You know, or are you one of those people who you believe the right things about Jesus? But it's not changing your life because you've never fully surrendered to him. You know, before our service is out today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to surrender to Christ. If, if you want to experience the full measure of God's love for you, that's the gateway. Now, the gateway is open to everybody. It's a global invitation. John 3.16 uses the word whoever, whoever believes, whoever surrenders to Jesus. God doesn't exclude anybody. But some people choose to exclude themselves by refusing, by refusing to surrender to Christ. And that decision has eternal consequences, as we're going to see in a few moments here. Now, one additional thought about this, this invitation. Once you have responded to it, once you've surrendered to Christ, okay, it's as if God gives you a stack of invitations 
and says, now that you've responded to my invitation, I want you to be the one who extends this invitation to other people. You know, people in your neighborhood, people at school, people you, you work with, your friends. I want you to tell them that I love them. I want you to tell them that I gave my son on the cross to prove my love. He died to pay for their sins. I want you to tell them that they're invited to respond. And if they respond in faith, robust faith, in surrender, I've got wonderful things in store for them. God's given you that stack of invitations. You, you got them in your pockets right now. You got those invitations in your pockets. So the question is, this next week, this Christmas week, will you be pulling out the invitations and passing them out? Now, now let, let me give you some practical ways to do this. One, one of the ways you could do it this week is to pick up some of our God's Good News booklets. You hear us talk about them all the time. Anytime you want, they're available free of charge at the information counter at any of our four campuses that explain the basic good news about Jesus. And, and here's, here's the challenge. Consider attaching a God's Good News booklet to some of the gifts you give. In fact, think in terms of gifts that you weren't planning to give. Pick up a box of candy for your auto mechanic and drive it by his shop and give it to him with a God's Good News booklet. Or pick up a tin of caramel corn for your dry cleaner and give it to her with a God's Good News booklet. Here's a little something to go with the gift. Okay, this little booklet's changed my life. Hope you enjoy it. Here's a, here's a second way to do it. And by the way, you could put those with gifts to relatives, whatever. Pick up a stack of Christmas Eve invitations. You know, this is the one time a year where, where people will come to a service, even if they're not interested in the spiritual side of it, they're interested in the cultural hold a candle and sing Silent Night side of it. All right? So grab some Christmas Eve invitations and pass them out. I've been giving them to waitresses in the restaurant and to mechanics and this last week to the girl who groomed my dog. And, you know, just pass them. Invite people to one of our Christmas Eve services. The last thing I'd encourage you to consider, and to do this this week before you forget, because over the holidays you'll forget this one, go online, ccclife.org. Check out the Go Team trips that we're sponsoring this coming year and consider spreading the global invitation globally. Go to Nicaragua. Go with one of our Go Teams to the Czech Republic. Go to Brazil. Go to Sierra Leone. Go, go to Bangladesh. Bangladesh has just reopened for us. We'll be sending a Go Team this next summer. Okay, The invitation, the global invitation, we get to give it out. Isn't that cool? We get to give it out. Here's number four. God's global home. And this is the last phrase of John 3.16. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. Say that with me. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. One more time. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. Can we put the whole thing together? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When Fidel Castro died a few weeks ago, a uh, cynical cartoon appeared in my news magazine. It was a picture of Castro on a small island in hell. And there were flames shooting up behind him. And this little island was surrounded by shark-infested water. And there were two demons who were taunting Castro, they were, they were pointing to a little rowboat, tiny little rowboat 
on the shore of this island. And one of them said, you will spend eternity trying to escape this island in that tiny boat. Uh, obviously, the cartoonist thought it would be poetic justice if Castro suffered eternally for all the people who died while trying to escape his oppressive regime in, in Cuba on anything that floats. Now, I, you know, I don't know the details of what God has in store for Fidel Castro, but, but I do know, based on John 3.16, that everyone who rejects God's global invitation, everyone who refuses to surrender to Christ, will perish eternally. Now, now th th these are not my words. In fact, these words come out of Jesus' mouth more than anybody else in Scripture. These are the words that you'll find in the Bible's most famous verse, John 3, 16. See, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, but if we reject Jesus, then we're destined to pay for our sins ourselves. Somebody's got to pay. The penalty, let me remind you, is death, eternal death. And Jesus volunteers to pay the penalty in your place. If you say, no, thank you, not interested. There's only one person left to pay. J.C. Ryle, a Bible scholar back in the 19th century, he had this to say about John 3.16's reference to perishing. He said, nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse, to refuse the glorious salvation he's provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son. Nothing is so suicidal Ryle adds, nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. Now, there's an alternative to perishing. Those who surrender to Jesus Christ, according to John 3.16, shall not perish but have eternal life. The alternative is, is eternal life. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that expression, eternal life. My guess is that you think of a long quantity of time. Eternal life must mean life that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Interestingly, in the Bible, eternal life is more about the quality of that life than the quantity. And when you stop to think about it, this makes good sense because who wants the quantity of life that goes on forever and ever if the quality of that life is not that great? If it's not going to be that appealing. I mean, if you've ever been not impressed with the whole notion of heaven because you've thought of it as sitting on a cloud and strumming a harp for forever, see, you get it. You know, who wants to do that even if you can do it for forever? I mean, even when we stop and think of, of heaven in terms of something we really like doing, gardening or sailing or eating or playing video games, who wants to do that day after day after day after day after day after day after day after? I was, I was traveling in Europe some time ago, and I ran into this elderly gentleman who had just moved to Europe to this particular country to serve on a missions team. And uh, I said, wow, you know, what are you doing here? You look like you're, you know, you ought to be retiring someplace. He goes, I tried it. He said, for the, the past decade or so, I've been looking forward to retiring, moving to Florida, and playing golf every day. And I said, oh, so you didn't get your wish. He said, no, I got my wish. I retired, I moved to Florida, I played golf every day. After one year, I was so bored. I said, what am I going to do with my life? And so I'm here. 
See, it's not just, you know, quantity is a real drag if it doesn't involve quality. You know, as I make this point, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on the stage across our four campuses. We're going to close in just a few moments. You know, interestingly, when, when Jesus describes eternal life in another passage, he describes something that focuses more on quality. Listen to what he prays to his heavenly father in John 17, verse 3, on behalf of his disciples. Jesus says, Father, this is eternal life. This is it. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What's eternal life according to Jesus? Life that goes on and on and on. Well, yeah, that's part of it, but, but really it's knowing God. It's knowing God in an intimate, soul-satisfying way. It's spending forever with God in a fabulous new heaven and new earth. It's an eternal home with Jesus. Jesus says in the opening verses of John 14 that he's now preparing for those who've surrendered their lives to him. He's getting this home ready. You know, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, verse 9, we read that we're going to be hanging out with Christ followers from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if you've ever been on a go team and worshipped with people in places like Bangladesh or Haiti or, or Brazil, you can imagine what this is going to be like, God's global home. It's for you. Say the verse with me. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 